Welcome to Illuminata Podcast. I'm Charlotte. I'm Emily. And I'm Sarah. We are three young researchers that want to highlight the importance of women in agriculture who are part of the STEM community. We're so proud to be a part of this and we want to share with you the real life of some extraordinary women making a difference in their field. Let's break the stereotypes and show what we really are. Are you ready to be inspired? Hello and welcome to the Illuminata podcast. Today I have the pleasure to introduce Dr. Kate Burke. She has a practical and pragmatic approach to farming based on 30 years of experience as an agricultural scientist in the dryland cropping sector. She has the particular skill for connecting the dots in science, people and money. So with a unique blend of evidence, insight and empathy, Kate encourages readers to clear the fear and take the steering wheel towards excellence farming. And today we're here to talk about her book, which is called Crops, People, Money and You, The Art of Excellent Farming. And welcome to our Illuminata podcast. Yes, welcome. Yeah. So nice to, to have you. Oh, it's uh, good to have you too. So, I'm, a huge, I'm a huge fan, by the way. <laughs> I really you loved your book. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's... That's very nice of you. Okay. So, Kate, can you tell us more a bit about yourself? And also, when did you get this idea to start writing the book? How long did it take you? Uh, thanks, Emily. And, and thanks, Charlotte. Thanks for Illuminata to, for having me. You've got a great uh, initiative here. So it's a real pleasure and honor to be part of uh, your guest panel. Um Yeah, so, so my background, just briefly, I grew up on a farm in northern Victoria and uh, youngest of, of six is uh, four boys, two girls, so um, an older sister. And, and I've always been keen on agriculture. Like my dad um, was uh, charged with a lot of the babysitting because mum went back to work when I was you know, four and a half. And so I spent a lot of time on the farm with Dad and, um, and was a fairly keen student and ended up doing an agricultural science degree. So that's sort of like the, the backpack story. And in terms of the book, I, I worked in a number of areas in, in my degree. I worked in, in research in the lab. Then I worked, um, actually did, did some teaching. Um, so I worked in the higher ed sector myself. Um, then, then started working in, in consulting and then the real sort of people aspect of farming, I guess. And, and throughout those years, I was really interested in why, you know, what made, um, I guess, a natural farmer or why some people seem to be more lucky than others and um, just what made good decisions and, you know, yeah, what, what the tricks of the trade were. And so I started just collecting a lot of information over the years and and in the end I, I sort of worked out that it was basically to do with productivity profit and passion so if you're good at whatever you know whether it was growing cattle or growing crops um, if you're good at that you're good with money and good with people and and good at managing yourself then 
then they seem to be the magic ingredients and that's what all the mm-hmm. all the evidence or the literature actually told told me as well so um and it was really difficult to find uh, a publication that just narrowed it down like that um there was either you know you had your textbooks like bill malcolm's um agriculture in australia the sort of the I suppose the the handbook for anybody who goes to uni and studies ag and then but in terms of what was generally available to the public and to farmers most of the books were sort of like hobby farm type books and and so I saw this gap between the the uni textbooks and the and the general interest hobby farmer book and I thought well why don't I fill that gap Mm -hmm. and that's what it is we really enjoy. I think it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing, and it's really easy to read, and it's for everyone. It's really like I really liked it and enjoyed, it and I understand everything. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yes, we've been so very lucky to receive a copy of the book. So thank you so much for yes. that. But yes, um, because obviously we are from a more of a, I guess, the scientist background. We love this book because it talks about these. Um, so it's like the five sections that you have in the book. But um, Charlotte's going to comment more on this topic that she yeah, likes. Later. But I really like because in every, every part of the book, there is like a small square with important things that you have to remember with like with quotes, important quotes. And I really love that. It's I really like the structure and how you organize the book. I think it's that's why it's easy to read. Um, it's enjoyable. Yeah. Thank, thanks, Charlotte. I, I was um, pretty passionate about that because I, I think we're all so busy at the moment and I know I'm a bit of a, I've, I love reading and grew up enjoying reading, but I've become a lazy reader and I think social media makes us lazy reader, like we can't read any more than 140 exactly. characters. So, so I wanted to write the book. I, I sort of knew what books... I found easy to read and to get the information you wanted out of. And they were those books that were broken up into breakout boxes and things. So basically I wrote a book that um, I figured if, if, if I could have the patience to read it, then most people should. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the feedback I'm getting is even non-readers are reading it. And that's what I'm really, a lot of men think that they're not readers particularly oh. young guys, um, but they're reading it, which is great. And also, like, I really like you put a, a quote from people that you liked at the beginning of the chapter, and I, I thought they were very inspiring. And, yeah, well done. Thank you. <laughs> everyone Thanks. should read this book, everyone. <laughs> oh, oh you're, you're very kind. Thank you. And also I'm curious about the background process. So did you start writing it, um, like, before the whole 2020 pandemic or or was that ongoing thing and also uh, also like before before like how did you it wasn't too overwhelming to sort of grab all this information and put it into a book <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they're both very good questions I guess having been silly enough to try and write a thesis um, or to write a thesis in, in a previous life, I think that sets you up for hmm. writing 
writing any sort of book because nothing can be as daunting as writing up your own work and um, and putting yourself out there for for public approval. So I think the the thesis writing of um, a long time ago now, um, 2004. 97 to 2004 was my PhD years. Um, I think that that was a good apprenticeship for this task. And um, uh, I've done quite a bit of writing in the past. My as a consultant, one of um, my tasks was to to write sort of accessible information for our client base. And um, in more recent times, within my own uh, practice. Uh, I'd been writing articles and things um, for for a few years, and and so in terms of the book itself, some of this information I had written about in over the last few years, and and getting it together, I guess, was a bit of a a work in progress, and. I'd, I'd been interested in writing this book for about five years and I guess the last couple I was really getting towards right, you know, this is the year, 2020 is the year and the pandemic actually just happened to coincide with it. That was pure coincidence but it was probably, um, I guess it forces, you know, there was a, it was a really good opportunity because it meant I was travelling a lot less and, in fact, I had... Um, I had booked a, um, had this romantic notion of, you know, going away to a, hol- a beach cottage to write the book. And, and I'd actually booked a cottage uh, down on the Victorian coast. Mm-hmm. And the afternoon that I was about to pack my bags to head off the next morning was the day that when they first announced last year in July that Melbourne was um, going into lockdown and they were putting a ring of steel around Melbourne. Oh. And um, and I had to drive through Melbourne to get to where I, the, I was going to go. And so we, I made the decision not to go and, and um, used that 10 days that I'd blocked out um, to start the process at home and then I picked it up again in um, I guess September, uh, late August, September and worked really hard in September and October and I'd set myself a um, the task. I wanted it to be out uh, by Christmas and uh, for, for the Christmas stockings and so I pushed yeah, basically wrote it in six months or a bit under six months, probably three or four months. And uh, it wasn't until afterwards that I found out that it's usually you take a couple of years to write a book. <laughs> well, You're like a Wonder Woman. You're oh. a printing machine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know, Charlotte. I, I was lucky to... I was lucky to... Um, uh, come across a group called the Thought Leaders Business School a couple of years ago, and, and that group really normalises the process of writing a book. Mm-hmm. And um, and I had um, the way of storing your information and getting your thoughts together and recording your thoughts. Um, I had used their process and their curriculum, so that that's all sort of been in the build-up in the last, I guess, the 18 months before I got serious about putting pen to paper. I'm very glad that you did. It's an excellent oh, book. 
with more than 30 years in, in this space, pretty much, um, did you have mentors that inspire you along the way? I'm pretty sure it's been many, but if there was like a few of them that you could highlight, who would it be? Yeah, th thanks, Emily. It's, gee, when we say 30 years, I'm sort of starting to feel my age. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've only got another, you know, 30 or 40 years to go, I guess, in, uh, in, in agriculture. Um, yeah, lots of mentors. You know, I, um, in my professional life, I guess, you know, my first boss, I think that person always has an impact on, on any young professional. He's a guy called um, Dr. Joe Panozzo. And then when I was at the um, Ag College, there was, you know, three or four of the staff there that um, that were, were really helpful um, along along the way, Rob Norton, John Petherin particularly. And then, um, then I started working with Oh, and Howard Eagles, my PhD supervisor. And then I started working with a guy called John Stutchbury and his wife, Carol, and um, they had a young family. I was their first in employee. Um, we were independent consultants to, to farmers and um, in a small family business. And as we, John, John taught me the professionalism of consulting and, and um you know, being a thinking consultant and, and putting your clients first and and um, getting getting that balance using the science but also the economics, making sure that it was about, um, you know, there was a return there at the end of the day but also having a long-term approach in, in how um, about around the advice that, that you give. So, yeah, John was certainly a really big, big influence um, one of the other ones was sort of, I think that the longer you're in the industry, any industry, then you start to get inspiration from those that are younger than you. And another, another um, mentor was um, a chap called Liam Lennigan, who was actually eight years my junior, but I guess uh, he was had a lot of ambition and pushed himself and probably pushed me to push myself as well and take opportunities. So, you know, he, he's been a great, I guess we've been mentoring each other for the 20 odd years that we've known each other. I have a question about the transition that you had from being a researcher, so working in academia to a consultant, like consulting and, and be with people and communicating with people. Mm -hmm. It's like almost a bit the opposite. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a that's a really good point, and I guess I am a bit of a freak uh, in that I'm one of those people that likes people, but also enjoys my own company and thinking. And I like maths as much as I like English. You know, a lot of scientists tend to sort of have the one bent or or the other. Um, so I've been lucky enough to have a mix of, I suppose, interests and, and skills. So for me, I couldn't wait to get out of the lab and into um, the, the field and, and having more um, interaction with human beings. But I actually also like, I love the data collection and, and I, I really enjoyed the um, you know, the writing up of the lab work and, 
and writing up papers and basically I'm a nerd. I really like that. And I can definitely resonate with uh, what you just said. Um, I feel like being a student in agricultural science, it's being an ongoing learning process because obviously what we know at um, what we learn at uni on all the subjects, very scientific, the thing. But then once we jump into these agricultural research topics, you see that it's beyond the science. It is about mm. the applications, the uptake of technology, the return, what you said, and obviously how applicable it is in the different environments that we see. So I guess that we cannot miss that connection with the people and we need to be talking to the farmers as well. Yeah, there's some really good... Um... Some, I think I put a quote in the book about the late Stuart Hawkins talking about having to consider the whole and the people aspect and not just the narrow scientific principle. And there's another book um, that's a pretty solid read called Agriculture and Philosophy by Professor Lindsay Felby. And um, he's actually got a PhD in both philosophy and agriculture. And he... And he writes in that too that you know, any any scientific pursuit is futile if you don't consider the the humanistic aspect of it. And I guess that's what I tried to get across in the book that where humans and humans are responsible for the decisions that are being made. Um, and quite often it's easy to point the finger and say, "Oh, the information we have isn't enough," or you know, this experiment. We don't quite, haven't got the perfect answer, so we'll go off and do another experiment and another experiment and another experiment. But, you know, sometimes you just have to make a decision and that's what consulting taught me. I love that. <laughs> About being with people and talking to people, when did you establish Think Agri and how is this service helping farming business to thrive? Um, yeah, to so the middle of... 2015, actually registered for business on my birthday, so that was pretty exciting. And and I guess I, I'd seen an opportunity because I went from consulting to working in corporate agriculture for a little while and I became more familiar with sort of the formal business processes from the, the corporate world and, and I guess just the city world really. And I could see there was a place for both aspects within a farming business. Um, and I, I saw that there was an opportunity to bring the best of both worlds together. And so that's what I've tried to do, whether I'm working with, you know, a large corporate farm or um, a, a family business that's been farming in the area for five generations. and. Most of the solutions are usually there within the knowledge bank in the business, but often it's just a matter of like cleaning out the mess in in the top drawer, so in 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 amongst the human dynamics of the business. So whether it's all the racing thoughts in in your own head and doubts, or whether it's the conflict and of different opinions of two or three people in the business. So I liken it to sort of taking everything out of that top drawer that you have in your kitchen, that, that the, the one where you put all your mess. So you sort of pull all that out and tidy it all up and then put it back in in a, in a neat package. And, and I do that through conversation with, with the client. 
And um, I guess in, you know, another analogy is I, I might be like those phone finder apps that you have um, where you, um, you know, trying to find the, the phone that you've, you've put down somewhere in the house. And, and so they're trying to find a solution and I'm just the, the mechanism that they use to find that solution. And usually they get it out of themselves. So, I, you know, try and locate the cool problem and then find the solution. And ultimately, really what I'm try- doing at, at the end of the day is to sort out what makes them unhappy. And, um, and often it starts, they've got a perceived source of a concern and then we check that whether that's the actual problem or not, try and find the real problem and then work towards a solution. So it could be a money-making issue, it could be a technical issue, or it could be, you know, that might have got me into start talking about succession planning, but we end up working out, well, they're not making any money, so, you know, why aren't they making any money? Um, and it could be that there's a machinery issue that means that they're sewing late and what they actually need to do is... Um, Know, go out and buy a new cedar. So often it's human nature has it that often what we think the problem is isn't actually the problem. So that was a long answer. Usually like we we, we have a tendency to be the problem, to be like if we have a problem, we're going to be the problem. But it's like we are not the problem. Like the problem is something that is like behind us. Like, But we can just like it's something that, it's not, it's not, it doesn't define you. And some people, they define as the problem. Yeah, so. mm. yeah that's right. They see it as a failure because um, it's difficult to separate that context of work and business from the human yes, being. Yeah. So it's that whole fear of failure. But we are human, so we're like, we, we do that. It's in our, yeah, exactly. <laughs> in our <laughs> nature. So, I mean. Yeah, apparently, apparently so. <laughs> So, so we know that farming is a multidisciplinary, this is a big word, <laughs> field of <laughs> expertise. And also like there are several pieces to the puzzles. So your book is, it's like almost like an almanac to excel in farming. And usually farming does not come with a manual. So you, you wrote this book, as I say, to share your expertise and to set an outline to farm, to make best decision for the business for our, and ourselves, but also the people that we work with. But like, in my opinion, what makes this book like special is the you part. And I love how you included this part in your book because in farming, even if we have like money or land, it's not like, the most important, like, it's not the most important part. The most important part is your value, your mindset, and how you face the problem. And this is how you excel in farming and life as well. So in the book, you talk about emotional intelligence and your personal power. And I would like to, like, I like how you openly talk about this in context of agriculture. So what's the best way to start on this self-development journey? to excel in farming and life as well. <laughs> yeah, thank, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this part of it and and I guess it's um, it was a bit of a passion project. Um, some of the work I've done 
personally, um, you know, it was pointed out to me that the easiest, the thing you've got most control over and therefore the easiest thing to change is your own behaviour. And, um, and the other interesting thing was all the research said that every individual farm was just so different and basically it was the unique characteristics of that farm and so, you know, logic then tells us that it's the unique decisions and the unique people in that farm that have the most influence. So, so they were sort of, that's the reason why I focused a lot on you and your choices or on, on, on the individual. In terms of um, emotional intelligence, which is essentially self-awareness, the ability to self-regulate, awareness of others and the ability to manage others, I reckon the best way to start once you once there's an acceptance or an acknowledgement that it's actually a useful thing to do is to book a meeting with yourself, as one of my um, colleagues, Lisa O'Neill, would, would say. And that meeting could be in the shower or in the ute or in the paddocks or if you're a student while you're doing fieldwork. Um, and I think the questions to ask is, you know, if you had to rate yourself between one and five in terms of your own self-awareness and self-management, um, you know, what number would you give, what score would you give yourself? And if you had to rate yourself in how aware you are of others and how, whether it's, you find it, you know, difficult to manage others or you're constantly surprised that you find yourself um, stepping on people's toes and not realizing it well that's you know that can be a hint that um, you're not that aware and then then I think the next thing is to ask yourself well what do other people tell me about myself so you know um, have there been incidents at work or at home that that might indicate um, you know either positive attributes around self-awareness or, or um, areas for improvement. And I think if you're really game, it's actually asking other people and saying, well, you know, what do you think, uh, you know? And, but that can be, you know, that takes a fair bit of courage. And, and being sincere with ourselves. Mm. And there is this quote from your book that I really love from Tom Rath. You cannot be anything you want to be, but you can be a lot more of who you already are. Yeah, I and really that's like a whole, this quote. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Thanks for that. And it really comes down to one of the, the, the science around resilience that authenticity is, and, and resilience, you know, is an overused expression and probably authenticity is too these days. But the science is pretty clear that um, to be able to sustain and manage yourself and dig deep in times of challenge, that being true to yourself and being who you are is um, provides, I guess, fuel to do that. And if there's this friction, because it takes away all the friction, but if, if there's this constant friction that, you know, you might be a really super shy person working in McDonald's and you've got to smile and be happy to people every day when really your passion would be to be hidden away, you know, in a lab um, 
counting faba beans or something? Well, the the always the hardest part is to look inside, right, ourselves and do the rating that you say because sometimes we are not aware still of how we are impacting our selves perhaps with our own decisions and the rest so mm. i really like that advice that you gave us and it, it, it the, this book precisely provides us this context on how to start especially framing it in a way where we um be where we are part of a team where we work with people and how that affects business in the end because we all have the mm. passion we we are doing this in agriculture because we have a passion for the land, for the animals. And obviously we want to make our, our business like profitable and make the best that we can. And for that, obviously we have to be kind of, um, I will say uh, at peace and be comfortable yeah. with who we are mm. and, and yeah. what we want to achieve. Yeah. I, think, um, I think that's really true and I know it took me a long time to to get to that point on a personal level I actually lacked a lot of confidence and was always questioning I guess I was a perfectionist didn't realize I was a perfectionist and so I was always thinking about all the things I hadn't done well rather than what I had done well and you know spent probably the first well I did spend the first 20, 20 years of my working life beating myself up, telling me myself all the things that I hadn't done well. And um, so I think, and I will talk about this a bit later, but but instilling confidence in yourself, and this is a particularly female thing, I, I think, that young young women have a lot less confidence than young men and um, in, in their professional ability and, the, you know, we've all got it there, but we tend to hold back compared to, um, you know, there's a confidence level, it seems, in, in, in young men that they're, you know, prepared to have more of a go than, than perhaps we are. I know that's very general. But, but this is what we have heard before, right, Charlotte, in our previous interviews um, that we have done with, um, the female speakers, many mentioned this exactly this point that you said, and it's all about having that confidence to go for it. For and um, and I guess obviously as females, as you said, it takes us a bit, uh, it takes a bit more work for us to go and mm. go and get it. The opportunities. But we need to. We just need to be bold. Like I think. I think so. Yeah. We don't have to be ninety percent perfect, you know. We, no, like there is no perfection. Something. What is perfection? Everyone is perfect their own way. Everyone is different. And what does it mean different? Like there is no. <laughs> yeah, perfection is impossible. It, it's yes, just... we're human. <laughs> it's impossible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're not robots. Otherwise, we'd be robots. Robots are perfect. But even yeah. even though. <laughs> But that's why make what makes like the human such an interesting creature because we are not perfect. We have we have imperfection, and that's why what makes us original, makes us special, make us like like I like my my differences. I like my like, my imperfections, and yeah, what what makes me who I am. So, but Being for people sometimes, 
yes, sometimes yeah. people they don't accept that, and but we yeah. we have to accept it. <laughs> well, we're you're with yourself every day, so yes, you know, <laughs> might as well get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> but it's also important to be surrounded by good people. People that support you and yeah. push you and yeah, or people that are because it's fine to be good, it's fine to be fine by ourselves. I think this is one of the most important to be to interact with people. We have to be good with ourselves, even in a relationship. We need first to love ourselves and after like we can truly or like being with other people and so yeah. you in, in your book you talk about the team landscape and I felt like this is that's what very interesting and that was it was like um introduced by Catherine Mc, McCowan is it is it McEwen, like this yeah. McEwen sorry <laughs> yeah. and so in your book you're talking about the characteristic of the team landscape so there are like four teams and sort of so people lamb deep and deep so people is an acronym acronym i'm just gonna tell to our just to, to tell people that are listening what are these acronyms so people means purposeful energetic ongoing profitable legacy lamb is lean and mean burn burnout deep is direct directionless imploding passive and tip is toxic imploding passive this mm. is the description of these four categories so how do we become better at handling these types of teams and how can we improve our capabilities to reach goals yeah thank um good good questions and i guess uh, so so i came up with this model of teams based on as a build onto the individual model where I talked about grounded thinking and each of us has a thinking landscape. And the, and the point that Catherine McEwen made about resilience was that you can have resilient individuals, but that adding them up doesn't mean that they um, will always be a resilient team. So it's how they interact is, is what gives you, you know, a, a productive team. And basically, if you think about the productivity of a team and on, on one axis of a, of a graph being scientists, you'll be all over graphs. And then you think about um, on the x-axis, basically the resilience of, of that team. Um, on the top right corner, the people team is both productive and resilient and, and by default therefore profitable, assuming costs are under control. Quite often you can have quite resilient or, or happy, comfortable teams, but the productivity is not happening because there isn't any direction and that's the dip team. So the, that's where things, people get frustrated because they're not getting results and you can get passive aggression or, you know, people can go missing. That's why I came up with the sort of the invisible. So that's the drifting invisible and passive side probably the the teams that are most um problematic and not that much fun to be part of are the sort of the toxic teams where there's a lot of conflict um 
and and it's quite painful to be around and and you know basically they they can implode so you get low productivity and and low um happiness i i guess can i just interrupt you interrupt you uh, yeah, sure. with this sort of people how can you drive them or how can you like because when you're like in contact with uh, toxic people in my opinion like you feel your energy just drain and yeah. like you feel exhausted really like yeah. they, they just take all of your energy and you're exhausted so how can you just be not affected with these people and just interact with them how how you interact with these people and without being rude or being like kind yeah and nice? well well i think it's around obviously there's not a great deal of harmony in the group and you know and it may be that there's an overall toxic culture or uh, it's one or two individuals that are toxic. Personally, I think, I actually think it's about the first thing to do is actually have self-protection. So, you know, limit the interaction. When the interaction's necessary, I guess it's about you know, trying to, to be clear and assertive um, if need be or if it's, You know, if if, to if the toxicity is completely inappropriate, well, I think then it's about drawing on the support from others around you and and if there needs to be a change in the organisation, um, you know, if there's an opportunity, like opportunity to for management to be made aware that the culture is not great, then, you know, I think as a, as a group, something need, needs to happen, you know, and that's, I guess, courageous conversations are one of those um, tools when it, when it comes to, to sometimes people can be toxic um, or to, might not be toxic but might be bristly because there's something going on in their world, you know, um, that we don't know about. And, and I, I know that, I know when I'm tired, I get quite cranky and um, can be a bit hard to be around. So, so I guess it depends on on what's causing the the toxicity and and at what le is it fixable or, or not. And I think there's again in some of Catherine McEwen's work, and I've seen it in other work too of um, dealing with with conflict. You've sort of got or or a uncomfortable situation you know there's, there's four choices there's do nothing and be miserable there's um try and do something about it there's acknowledge that you can't do anything about it and and sort of just manage your own reactions or in the worst case scenario it's quite appropriate to remove yourself yep But, uh, i hope neither of you resign tomorrow otherwise your supervisors aren't going to be happy with me <laughs> <laughs> no. so I, find, I find this very insightful because yes. in my mind it used to be academia has this problem we are we are obviously we have to work on teams and we encounter these types of teams very often but the issue oh, yes. academia being the problem of publishing as much as you can overworking hours and stuff mm. but How do we uh, know, how is this toxicity or the toxic traits visible in agriculture 
what do people do in, in that space? I'm, I'm very curious about this. Oh, I think it's the same. It's the same thing, you know, tired and overworked and be hmm. irritable with each other. And, and, and particularly in, in, in family farms, uh, quite often it's, you're involving your family and we're, and we, we're always, um, I guess, hmm. probably more natural around our loved ones and can behave even more poorly um, when it comes to, to being around mm. those closest to you. So, so that adds another layer. And I guess there's one, you know, just back to the comment I made before about the really the only person that you can change is yourself. So therefore being in these situations, it's about managing your response, not expecting other people to change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is. I love that. I love this response. I, I love that. It's so true. It's, so. It applies to both things, to people. Everything. Uh, yeah, that are in academia. Yeah, relationships, family, yeah, work, everything. anything. Everything. And I, I also think that um, now having these added issues on top of, like, obviously, pandemic stress, climate yeah. stress, all of those things are putting pressure, not only in ourselves, in our businesses, in the community. Um, mm. Notably, being climate change, the reason that it's going to impact us the most in our agricultural activities in the future so this is why we wanted to ask, um, how do you see the future of farming coupled with these challenges, given that it's all about us gathering those energies um, to achieve something, right? Or effort? Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And I think it relates to the last question too. So... I just want to touch on something about academia before we go into climate change because it is, they are related. Um, so I think the challenges we face are actually systemic. No, that's true. So, it's so the challenges you, you, you yeah. face in challenges you face in academia about this pressure to publish, for example, um, you know, so you can go up the chain like that's a. You know, that's a structure that's come from other countries, you know, from our forebears 500 years ago and um, or at least in the last 200 years and whether that system's still appropriate for tenure now, you know, is probably quite questionable. Um, so that's an example of a systemic problem and, you know, and each individual, if they can't change the entire way that, higher education employment and research employment works in Australia, then all you can do is manage your piece in that. And I guess that's one of the reasons why I left research and um, went in a different direction. Um, and so then when you think about climate change, again, there's so much that we can't change ourselves because it's systemic, um, because it requires government and policy changes and, and what we can do is limited while everybody squabbles over, um, you know, based on, on where they are in, the, in, in their um, political persuasions. In, in the meantime, you know, 
the old saying that um, Nero fiddles as Rome burns, and and I feel like that is happening with with climate change. I guess in agriculture we're in it, and we we've been researching this stuff for you know over twenty years now. We've got great data there and great modelling. So we know what to expect. And I guess what's confronting to me is, you know, the first time I sat in a presentation in 1997 about weather patterns and climate systems and what might happen. And then again, you know, five or six years later, you're thinking, oh, this is this is all happening. And then I think it was about 2008 when Mark Howden, who's now um, you know, a significant player in the in the in the international panel now he said we'd have more bushfires more floods hotter summers and it's happening and and as a result even in 2008 when they were making predictions about what would happen by 2020 those rainfall predictions they were making we were already there in our reduction in rainfall in in our area down in in Victoria around Birchip and and Horsham and, you know, an example is um, one of uh, my clients, their long-term annual rainfall used to be 420 millimetres and now in the last 20 years it's been 360 millimetres. So, so one of the reasons that a lot of the modelling hasn't gone so well for us or policymaking hasn't gone so well for us in the Murray-Darling Basin is because in the modelling that they did, they used rainfall records going back to um, the turn of the, from the 19th to the 20th century, so all the records they had, but the climate had already started changing. I'm sure if they did that modelling just using the last 30 years, they would have had a completely different answer and they completely underestimated the um, incident of of drought and therefore, you know, water shortage. Um, So... Uh, despite all that, I'm hopeful because the science is getting better. Just our understanding around climate indicators now and what that does for, for our variability. You know, we, we know what to expect. We know, we, we know that you know, if we don't do anything, that a Chuka could end up being like Burke, for example, or, um, or an is most likely going to end up looking like Griffith. So these are towns further north than, than Echuca where, where I live. And therefore, we, we need to start planning for that. We, we need to start thinking about the type of farming systems that will work in these changing climates in 20 years' time. There's my rant over. I mean, it's, it's very true. Um, the younger gener- generations are the ones inheriting sort of these <clears throat> issues. And mm. we need to find solutions for, and obviously now that we have the science um, research to find the potential alternative solutions to these, I think we're going to be able to reach us some solutions. Not everything can be solved because obviously, as you said, there is more bigger systematic issues that come in place, like the policies, the government, what they are doing just like a huge teamwork, I suppose. Yeah, and I, I think scientific literacy is really important and agricultural literacy is really important. Um, 
My concern is that the policy makers and the policy advisors have a very limited knowledge and the quality of information that is available is, is quite variable. So it's a bit like, I, I sort of call it your information diet. It's a bit like the, the food pyramid where you want to consume lots of fruit and vegetables and not too many lollies. And I really fear that um, policymakers and advisors and people in business are consuming a lot of lollies and that's the information that they're making big decisions on rather than, than engaging with the science and academic community. That's another rant. <laughs> I, love, I love these rants because they touch on so many in, important uh, issues. Um, like you mentioned, um, the science communication part, just, just gaining this literacy. We see how many people are um, now... We, we just have seen it happening right now with the vaccination, right? The lack Absolutely. of information has reached to the point where people obviously think that all of this is some big scheme of, of things. And I feel like it's the same um, in agriculture. For example, <clears throat> people that think that we are creating GMOs um, be, just for the fun of it, because possibly these, these big companies are being paid to, to do this. It's just all wrong people got it wrong and because they're not educated that's why it's yeah it's um something is failing i think and we are not yeah doing yeah nothing. something is failing that that's right i think um <laughs> as i've got older and wiser i don't tend to think in wrongs and rights anymore i think in terms of what people's truths are and so somebody truth if the only information they've got about GMOs is the stuff on Facebook that says they're going to, you know, GMOs are a conspiracy. Well, that's their truth because people don't know what they don't know. And I guess that's where it's up to us as, a, as an informed community, scientific community that we can't sit in our little ivory towers and hide behind our journals. Um, you know, we have to interact in, with things like Twitter and Facebook and, and, and make the information accessible. And that was one of the passions for the book was because I felt in the business community was making decisions around agriculture without really understanding the impact of their decisions. Exactly. And, and if these things are locked behind paywalls, to read a scientific article, you're not going to mm. reach um, many of the people that need that information, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that, you know, the explosion in the use of the term regenerative agriculture is a, is a classic example. And the assumption based on the most accessible information tells you that regenerative agriculture is essentially organic agriculture, so not using chemicals or fertilisers, as well as another uh, a systematic approach, and that that is capable of sequestering all the carbon that is produced in, in agriculture. So if that's the only information you've got access to, why would you question it? Yep. Yeah. And they're not going to find the reviews that I've read in the last three days that, you know, have counter arguments to, to um, those claims. Um, 
And if they're reading that industrial agriculture is bad, then that's what they'll believe. So those of us involved in mainstream agriculture, if we're not getting our information out there to, you know, paint a broader picture, then then that's what the public are going to believe. But I'm, I'm, I'm glad that um, one thing that your book does is that it puts the information in a readable way, in an accessible simple way. way. Very simple. It's really Clear. a work of art, I think, <clears throat> this resource that um, now we have. It's, it's excellent. <laughs> Thank you. I, I do like to keep things simple. I, I think I'm a pretty simple thinker and... Um, I find it. I find reading complicated senses, sentences difficult, so I just put things oh, yeah. simply. Yes. <laughs> um, I really research articles, yeah. right? We we write. Oh yeah. Make it over complicated because it is what it is. <laughs> wow, well, I think, and, and you get into a um, you know because I've written a few papers myself, and you. You almost get into a bit of a game with your colleagues about using the biggest words you can find and the longest, you know, smoothest sentence you can find. And instead of saying a lack of information, you say a paucity of information because no one else uses sometimes, that word. Or yeah, sometimes you know. I can't. I can't pronounce. It. I can't pronounce the word. Sometimes they're too too complex yeah. or too yeah, long. Like or too like how discombobulation. You, you know, oh God, what is God. that word? <laughs> <laughs> just be simple just use simple words uh, so definitely i will recommend yeah. everyone to get a hand of the book and read it with a yes. highlighter take some notes on your book yeah look like <laughs> I, have, I have posted everywhere yeah. <laughs> and also i really like how you ended the book usually when i read a book i don't know i don't know you what do you do but i really like to read the the last uh, phrases at the end and so I really like your book because like the, I really enjoyed the final word. So I'm gonna read them. Your personal power will serve you well in the pursuit of excellent farming through paying equal attention to crops, people, and money. Be aware of your personal power, manage your top. Look after your resilience, tap into your awareness or of self and others. Use tools to transform uncertainty into possibilities. Be mindful of taking another person's stress. Swap judgment for compassion. We are all human and all different at the same time. I really like this one. Mm-hmm. Be clear in your role and set boundaries to allow recovery time. Also, this one is really. Be profitable, thrive, and grow your legacy. Good luck. <laughs> I really love this, like, this final word. It's advice even for the PhD right now. Yes. That's really useful. It's advice for everything. Really insightful. Just... Lovely. Thank you. I need to take notice of it myself now. <laughs> <laughs> so my my absolute dream would be that this book became on the curriculum of um, every agriculture course in Australia. Yes, because oh, it, yes. yeah, it will provide a lot of context, insights, advice to these people that are just starting on this career, right? Like it should be oh, yes. one of those books that you read alongside. I have a book called How to Get a PhD, for example. Yeah. <laughs> I have also like a book for how to write. <laughs> how to write, yeah, how to write your thesis. <laughs> I think I just oh, yeah. one out the other yes. way. <laughs> anyway. 
So I guess, yeah, we, we can tackle the last two questions. Yes. You go, Charlotte. I go. So in your opinion, what can we do to encourage young women to see agriculture as a viable career path? Yeah, I reckon there's a couple of things. One of them is around subconscious bias. So to actually call out the subconscious bias both in ourselves and in others and, and to watch language, like I think it really matters, you know, just simple things like people say, oh, yeah, you know, I spoke to the girl in the office or the girl behind the desk. Like we don't use that terminology with, with men. We don't say, oh, I spoke to the boy. I think showcasing women's careers is, is really in, important. And, and to really, particularly, I guess, from the farming, in farming families, you know, it starts at a young age of, of this sort of gender, gender bias of, you know, taking the, the young boy in the tractor and, you know, why not take the young girl? And, and, it, and it's great now to see more of that happening and more women coming home to the farm, particularly now that there's not as much sort of, I guess, manual physical strength required than there may have been you know 40 40 years ago I think the other in terms of professional or, or non-farming careers um, whether it be in consulting or agronomy or any of those people facing roles is to actually have the conversation about family life and babies openly um, I think that's something that that doesn't happen and, of course, uh, employers are very worried to talk about it in case they, they feel like they're saying the wrong thing or they're breaching employment law. And women ourselves, we're too, a bit too scared to talk about it too. Those conversations can lead to some really good places. If, you know, even if they're just done as hypotheticals. Because we need because, to be you know, creating these support systems for when women decide to have family, right? Those support systems in, in the sense that we need some flexibility and be able to come yeah. back to our careers as well. Yep. And, and there's no reason why that can't happen now, um, particularly with cloud-based information sharing, with teleconferencing, Zoom. You know, the pandemic at least has shown that. And that the world won't end if you're not in the lab or not in the office every day. And um, so all the barriers that were put there in front of, um, I guess, my generation, in theory, those barriers should no longer exist. And, and again, the world's not going to end if um, you're working from 9.30 to 2.30 and then doing work, um, you know, in the evening after the kids have gone to bed or like I've got um, a colleague who works with me and, and we work her her time and hours around, um, yeah, her, her family needs and it's fine. Stuff gets done. And one thing is also the opportunity, the different career opportunities that one could have in agriculture. It can, end, it can start with an agricultural science degree, but it can take you in so many different pathways. Right? Now we've seen if people have the passion, then, then they should go for it. And this is what we have to teach as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a broad degree. Like I'm so passionate about agricultural science because it's multidisciplinary. You know, you've got come on what you can end up in finance and economics, you can end up in, in animal agriculture, in, in cell biology, you know, 
creating vaccines. You mm. can end up in plants, in laboratories, in sales. Um, I've got a friend who, you know, I think about the people I went to uni with and, you know, one of them sells um, big vessels that that you store um, gas and fuel and those things in and, and, you know, he started off doing an ag science degree. And now people we- that have worked... In diplom- in, as diplomats, as you know, all sorts of crazy careers. It's a great broad degree. You can even write a book. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Thank you so much. For <laughs> yes. So <laughs> what advice would you give to your younger self? And what interesting projects do you have ahead? Yeah, so I reckon I've sort of talked about it before about the back yourself um, bit. I also think listening and and being humble. Um, and and the other one is we're not mind readers, mm-hmm. so it's impossible for us to know what someone else is thinking. So there's no point us making it up. So that's, that's my so true. that's my advice. Like we don't know what our PhD supervisor thinks about their draft chapter before we give it to them. So. <laughs> you know just get on with it and give it to them exactly does that have to pain out of the way yeah actually one of my other mentors fellow phd students one of them said to me when you finish this nobody's going to read it and you'll just end up using it as a book stop so just get on with it It will That's be printed and somewhere, somewhere in a bookcase. Okay, yeah. what's going to be next? What's next step for you? Um, I really, well, yeah, I'd like to um, get the book in as many hands as possible. And, yeah, at an undergraduate level, at farming level, at um, consulting level. So that's probably what I'm doing at the moment because I'm just really passionate about um I guess taking the pain out of agriculture and getting it back to sort of some simple logic and um, start thinking about what the next book might be. Yeah, definitely. Looking um, forward for that. <laughs> the part, but anyway, part two, perhaps, or some very different novel topic, perhaps. Maybe it needs to be cows, people, and money in you, or carbon, yeah. people, money in you. Anyway. Ooh. Thank you. Thanks so much. You've been so kind to me. And um, and I, we really like, we're so grateful about your time. Like sharing oh, no, this time with you time. And, and just uh, chatting with us. That was great. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, no, reach out anytime. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you so much. See, See you later, Charlotte. See you, Emily. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Kate. Bye.